Welcome everyone to the Family Law Now podcast and I want to welcome our viewers watching on our YouTube channel. Today's topic changes to the Divorce Act Part 3A, Mobility and Jurisdiction. Uh, lots going on here. We decided to break it down into two parts. If you've listened to our podcast on the best interests of the child and the changes to the Divorce Act, that is also two parts. I think the first section was one hour and 40 minutes. So we didn't want to keep everybody for three hours. Uh, if you want to learn more about mobility as we go on, part 3B will be coming out uh, in the near future. So I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing collaborative law with the team here at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers for over 20 years. We help clients going through separation and divorce. This podcast is designed for clients and parents, lawyers, dispute resolution officers, and other members of the family judicial uh, bar or system. The Justice Department of Justice Canada website has fantastic information on it. You can learn more about what we're talking about today. Lots of the commentary we are discussing today comes from that site. We will have show notes for you if you want to learn more about the statute or find a link to the changes to the Divorce Act. We will also provide a link to the Department of Justice website, which is a fantastic resource if you want to learn more about the Divorce Act. We've uh, broken our series into five or six parts because the changes are so big. The part one was objectives to the Divorce Act, part which included new duties of lawyers and clients. Part two was parenting and contact orders and best interests of the child. We're moving into part three now, which is mobility. Uh, so if you want to move the child out of your jurisdiction or to a different province and you're, you were married, this is going to apply to you. We're also going to talk about jurisdictional parenting orders and substantive issues in our next series, in our next section. But let's get into, uh, oh, the, the other thing I want to mention is this is federal legislation, so it applies across Canada. If you're common law and you're in court, you're probably in a provincial court. These changes do not apply to you. Uh, we're lucky in Ontario, we have a unified superior court in most parts of the province. If you're married and going through a divorce and have children, these changes are very important. You're going to want to try to understand what's new and what's changed. Uh, there's a lot of changes that we're going to talk about today. Without further ado, uh, we have three fantastic guests. If we could uh, just do brief introductions. Uh, Carolyn Warner, welcome. Tell us about who you are. Hi, thank you. So I'm a family law lawyer at Russell Alexander, and I've actually I practice exclusively in family law. And this year is actually my 10-year anniversary that I've been doing it. Wow. Where did 10 years go, eh? flew by <laughs> you'll be saying 20 years before you know it how scary is that uh we also have uh with us bill welcome bill rogers talk to us tell us about who you are comedian rock star lawyer which one's first um it depends on the judge um but uh, i've been uh, trying to be a lawyer but sometimes it uh, turns out i'm a comedian unintentionally um so I am, um, I'm an associate lawyer uh, with Russell Alexander uh, firm um, and I do strictly family law. 
and I've been practicing for 12 years. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. And uh, we have uh, somebody who probably needs no introduction. She co-hosts a bi-weekly webinar with me, provides fantastic information to the public and gives back in so many ways. Michelle Malton, welcome. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, please. Thanks so much, Russ. I don't know what else I can add to that. That is so kind, that introduction. Um, I also have been practicing for over 11 years. I do both collaborative and litigation, so I do it all. But if I really had to choose my favorite areas, or it's a little diverse, one would be child custody and parenting issues, and the other would be really complex financial issues. I really like when getting into the nitty gritty with financial statements and numbers because there is an answer. And I really love that finality of knowing the answer. Those are real bookends in terms it of really uh, choice. Custody <laughs> dispute or a financial statement. Yeah, interesting. Well, thank you, Michelle, Bill, Carolyn, for your time today. Let's get at it. I think uh, Carolyn's gonna make a start. So we're looking at, um, we can first talk about the changes um, to the Divorce Act for relocation. So one of the changes that we have here is that um, is in section 16.91. And so this is an important change because um, it talks about when a person who has parenting time um, or decision-making responsibility for a child, it talks about if they wanna move, the requirements for them that they have to give at least 60 days notice before their anticipated move um, and provide this notice to the other um, party in a, in a new court form that we have available. Um, if the other party has parenting time or has any other decision-making responsibility. So this change is important um, because it didn't exist before. Um, this change right here um, was put into place because it allows us to um, set out the relocation um, when someone intends to move and if it will have a significant impact on the child's relationship with the other parent or the other parents involved. Um, and the reason why the 60-day notice in advance is important is because it helps to preserve the relationship between both parents and um, it does set up like a standardized form because we didn't have that in place before. So it allows the information that should be relayed um, to the other party to be involved, for example, where they're going to be moving, the address, um, information like telephone number where they can be reached. And that also gives an opportunity for the parents to get together and you know, discuss the relocation and see if they can resolve it because ultimately a, a change in uh, residents could have an impact on parenting um, time. It could have an impact on decisions, such things as extracurricular activities, um, maybe where the school that the child goes to, their children go to. And then at that point, the other parent, um, if they have an objection to the move, they can, there's a, um, they can file a formal objection. And then all this did come to place um, fairly recently, it just started um, March 1st of this year, 2021. Great stuff. Bill, what do you think of the change? Well, I think it's a, it's a welcome change, uh, Russ. And uh, um, I've been reading um, uh, the, the law newsletter uh, written by the, uh, the late Phil Epstein, who uh, passed away uh, very much missed. Um, but uh, literally since uh, 
the, the mid nineties uh, after um, the Supreme Court released a, a decision called Gordon and Gertz, which used to um, govern mobility until now, the legislation's over, uh, overridden it. But ever since 1996, when that came out, Phil has been calling um, for guidelines to be created because uh, uh, it was just too vague, uh, unpredictable. So I, I think this is gonna be uh, very helpful for, for anyone in the situation. Philip's gonna, Philip seems to be deeply missed, uh, real, real generous lawyer, great mentor, great educator. Uh, very sad that he's passed. Michelle, what do you think of this change? Um, I think it's absolutely wonderful. And as Carolyn said, it's nice that there's now a form that you can send parties and they can have in advance because most people know in advance of 60 days that they will be moving. They probably don't know exactly the location yet, but they have some idea. So it's always great to give the other party the information in advance and let them know, um, gives everyone enough time to make decisions to be able to understand um, the change, how it's going to impact them. I can't tell you how many times I've had parties give five or seven days notice, which really leaves no time for discussion. Yeah, that's a great point. We, um, we're going to try to include the notice that you need to serve as part of the show notes in today's um, podcast and YouTube video. But I remember when we draft separation agreements, we always want to put written notice of people moving. Uh, you know, sometimes we put a distance on it, it might be 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers out of province, maybe out of the jurisdiction of the court. That's very important, and sometimes that gets overlooked. So it's good to have a default position that, like we have in this section. Sometimes I'll have clients who will um, say they just left. Can I call the police? Can I uh, find them in contempt? I go, well, what's the order say? And if the order is silent, there's nothing to prevent a parent from leaving it. I'm not encouraging it, but now the Divorce Act specifically requires parents to take these steps. And I think it's uh, certainly a needed change, as Bill mentioned. Okay, Carolyn, what do we got up next? So next we can go through um, the actual content of the notice. So we'll go through that it, just as a precursor. So the notice has to set out your expected date of the relocation. Like I said before, the address of the new place of residence and contact information of the person or child. And also a proposal for the parenting time and decision-making responsibility or contact and then any other information that might be useful. And, like, and this is a new form and there wasn't one that existed before. And um, in terms of the amendments, um, you have to set this out in your relocation notice and you also have to provide a reason for the change. So in addition to all that information, you have to provide a, a reason um, for why Caroline, there's a proposed it, Would it be okay if the reason is I just don't like my spouse? Yeah. <laughs> And I don't like the order I have, so I'm just going to move. I don't, I don't think that would suffice. <laughs> yeah, it has to be, well, we'll look, we'll go into further, and that goes to right. looking at for the, what's in the best interest of the children. Right, right. Sorry to throw a bit of a curveball at you. What do you think of this, uh, this requirement, Michelle? I think it's great. I think that uh, it's important that parties know, and there is something that we as lawyers can direct parties to, but also for people who don't have lawyers who are self-represented. This is now going to be, you know, very well known. 
not a lot of people know to go to case law. You know, the average Joe would have no idea what Gordon and Gertz even means. Um, it probably sounds like some, you know, odd uh, sa Subway sandwich or something like that. So, so it, this is something that's, something, yeah. <laughs> this is something that's easily found, easily searchable. There's going to be a form that anyone can access, not just people with lawyers. Right. And we'll try to include a copy of Gordon and Gertz in the show notes. It's no longer the law because the Divorce Act has changed. But if you want to get an understanding of the case we're talking about, we'll include it in today's notes. Now you realize, Russ, that page is over 100 pages long, so I'm sure uh, our clients are going to have a fun time reading that. There'll be a link. <laughs> We're not sending a copy. <laughs> Bill, your take? Well, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, uh, just the idea of people upping and leaving, um, which uh, has, has always been frowned upon. Uh, I think they some judges call that self-help. And it's uh, it's not the way to go. And at least with with, uh, with these new guidelines and the notice periods and the forms, um, uh, people are going to be able to discuss what's happening and, and come up with a parenting plan at least, rather than just uh, jumping into something with, with with no plan. Yeah, I, I I picked up on that too. That's really important. That you know you, the courts going to want to see a plan of how you're going to promote the child's relationship with the other parent if you make this move. We saw a lot of that in the pandemic case law where people were making allegations of um, risk as a result of conduct or the uh, COVID-19. And a theme throughout the case is, is the court wants to hear what your plan is to continue the child's relationship with it, with the other parent. Getting on a bit of a sidetrack here, but it's good that they've included that requirement in this specific, specific section. What do we have up next, Carolyn? So we can talk about there's some exceptions. So in exceptional cases, um, such as family violence, it may not be appropriate um, to provide 60 days notice. Um, and that's why the court has now enabled um, some exceptions to the requirement for the time. Um, so sometimes it may be more appropriate to have a shorter notice. Um, and it may be in a situation where it's inappropriate for the individual to know the location of where um, a parent and child are moving. Yeah, that's a really interesting change. There could be outstanding criminal charges or restrictions. I'm wondering if maybe a, a job offer might fall within this uh, section or covered off somewhere else. But notice is one of the fundamental principles of our justice system. People need to get notice and have a chance to respond. So I think it would have to be a really exceptional case for a judge to waive notice completely. I can certainly see tightening the deadlines to respond, but uh, that's one of the basic tenets of our system <clears throat> is putting somebody on notice and giving them a chance to be heard. So this is a pretty uh, extraordinary section. Michelle, thoughts? I really like this, thanks Russ. I really like this section because it really puts into perspective the issue of family violence and the fact that it is so prevalent right now, especially during this pandemic, but at all times, and that we have to make exceptions for people who are undergoing domestic violence. I've unfortunately had to do a number of these cases where women and children have had to leave in the dead of the night or you know, wait for the spouse to leave and then leave um, and go somewhere else. And sometimes it is inappropriate that the other party know where the children or where the other party is because there can be retribution. 
I know that um, the statistics are something like a party is 20% more likely to be um, a victim of a crime in that period immediately following a separation. So I think it's important that the courts have recognized this, have put that um, exception especially in there for victims of domestic violence and have made it easier for those people to be able to leave. Great insight. Bill, thoughts? I, I again agree uh, with everything that's been said. I mean, you know, family violence uh, is often a game changer in these in these things. And and I'm just glad the, the legislation's acknowledging it. Yeah, I agree. All right. So, Carolyn, what do we got up next? So, yeah, that segues really nicely into the next section, which talks about without requiring to provide notice. And so the legal language, when we talk about that, we say ex parte. So you would be bringing it on ex parte basis without providing notice. And that's, you know, an example where someone's fleeing family violence um, or if there's a serious safety risk, it may not be appropriate to provide notice. So then the act does have that amendment to allow that to happen. Um, there's some exceptions to the rule for the notice of 60 days. Okay, good to know. Michelle, thoughts? So it's a very good section. It's also a very um, well thought out section because as some of you may not know, but when you have a motion on an ex parte basis, there is a very short turnaround. So if for instance, your concern on the flip side is that someone brought an ex parte motion and didn't provide the court with all the evidence and maybe for instance, not um, being completely truthful, you will have the opportunity to respond in a very short time frame, And it doesn't set up a status quo of say two or three or six months. It's a very, very short turnaround. So I'm, I'm happy with the change. I think it's good that it sets out exactly the process that needs to happen and allows victims of domestic violence to use that section if it's appropriate but also doesn't allow other people to misuse that section. Good point, Bill? Yeah, it's, it's uh, absolutely, you were saying the, um, uh, it's fundamental in our system to, to give the other side notice and, and, and uh, the opportunity to respond. And as Michelle said, you're, with an ex parte um, motion, you're looking at usually four business days. I think it's a sensible uh, provision and uh, it's, it's uh, less open to abuse because of that fact. I mean, you're looking at, again, a very short time period. So I, I think it's it's good, I like it. Yeah, I think my only comment would be if you are gonna rely on this section, you wanna make sure you're coming in court with clean hands, you provide the judge with all the information, even information that is detrimental to your case or may not help you. If the court finds out you've misled the court in your ex parte materials, things will go badly and the judge will uh, be very disappointed that they relied on that material and it could affect your credibility in the case moving forward. If you're enjoying this video and find it helpful, you can leave a thumbs up in the comment box below. The next section is gonna be mine. I didn't realize until I was reviewing my notes how big of a section I gave myself. <laughs> So this might be, take a few minutes. So relocation authorized, sections 16.91 and sub two of the Divorce Act. Person given notice under section 16.9 who intends to relocate a child may do so as of the date referred to in the notice if the relocation is authorized by a court, 
or the following conditions are satisfied. The person with presenting time or decision-making responsibility with respect to the child has received notice under section 16.9 sub one, does not object to the relocation within 30 days after the day on which the notice is received by setting an objection in a form prescribed by the rules or an application made under the court to the court. The form, it sets out what the form must include, again, a statement of what the objection will be, the reasons for the objections, the person's view for the proposal of exercising parenting time and any other information. So this whole section is completely uh, new. The, I think it's kind of interesting that um, if you give the notice that modifies the onus to the person who wants to object to either file the form or bring a court application. So once, and I think clients and parents and lawyers need to be really mindful of this. We see this a lot with family responsibility office enforcement cases where somebody may get a notice that their driver's license is going to be suspended and they miss the time frame to take action. That's going to have a similar result here. If you, if you receive a notice and don't respond, you're basically opening the door for the move to occur, even if you object. So it's really important that you respond to these notices when, if you get one or that you comply with the act. It's awful convenient that if you give notice and the other side um, does not object, you can plan accordingly. And if they come to court later complaining, you can say, I complied with the act. I provided the notice and they didn't respond. So really interesting section here. What do you think, Carolyn? Yeah, I think it's a great section. I think there was a lot of uncertainty before about how to handle these type of mobility or now we call it relocation cases. So it sets out a very clear guideline. And uh, like you said, is if you get something, you have to act. So whether you have to get consult with a lawyer, get some advice, get some help, do what you need to do. But the worst thing would be to just not respond or bury your head in the sand. Um, there has to be a response because failing that, um, the move could go ahead. And I think it's also really helpful um, that it's now set out in a form and it's clearly indicating and it sets out basically what we used to see in the test from Gordon and Gortz, now it's sort of set out in a form in a prescribed format that's very clear of what you need to let the court know to put forward your position. Yeah, I agree. Michelle? I also agree that I like that it's set out. Anytime that the courts or you know the, the government can make things easier for the lay person, for just a normal person off the street, it's a good thing because Family law is complicated as is, so let's make it as accessible as we can. I can't tell you, Russ, how many times I've seen people do this where they do give notice, nothing happens, you know, 40, 60, 80, 90 days go by, they make the move, and only once the move is done does the other party right. come back and say, hey, wait, I don't like this move, and now I want, I'm going to make an issue with the court, or I'm going to go back and bring a motion. Well, this eradicates that. And I hope it actually helps the court keep these matters away from the court because it sets out timelines. You have an obligation to provide notice within X number of days. And then once you do, it flips to the other party and they now must respond within 30 days prior to the move. Because we don't want someone, for instance, signing a lease or paying moving expenses and then finding out that the other party objects. 
great point. It's human nature, I suppose, to uh, avoid these things or conflict. People don't want to go to court. They don't want to pay a lawyer money and they hope it just goes away. That, that's a very poor strategy. Uh, you need to respond. I agree, Michelle. Great tips. Bill? Well, it's, uh, it's early days yet um, for this legislation. I mean, March 1st, it, it came into force. And it'll be interesting to see that as the case law develops, um, I anticipate there will be um, litigation about, um, I missed the 30-day deadline to object. Here's my excuse. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how the case law plays out on that, because I'm sure that's coming. Right, more uh, the judge is gonna have to exercise some discretion. It's, it will be interesting though, how much patience the court's gonna have given limited resources, if people are not complying with the act and the, the changes have been well publicized, the media's covered a lot of these changes. So you're right, Bill, there might be some wiggle room, but you'd have to have a really good excuse. Like if you were uh, in the hospital in a coma, right. Yeah, if you're hospitalized or had health issues or maybe a family crisis, a family member might have died or something, but it would have to be a really good excuse, not simply the dog ate my homework or I can't find where I put the note. We all see parents and clients who come in with the documents with coffee stains all over them. And right, so I, I agree, Bill, you're gonna need to take it seriously, but there might be a little bit of wiggle room. Did you want to add to that, Bill? Sorry, I cut you off. Well, was, uh, the dog ate my homework. I mean, it, it kind of depends on the breed of the dog, <laughs> I would say. Let's write out your playbook, right, Bill? <laughs> For your, your court notes every time you go to court? If you're talking about a bull mastiff that weighs almost 300 pounds, I would say a uh, judge would be more lenient because there is a fear of the dog also eating the person. But not the Taco Bell dog. No. But my Yorkie poo isn't going to count. Is that what you're saying, Bill? So what you're saying well, is I need to get a bigger dog. That's that's what you've just told me. You, that, you, that, that. Any dog named Obi-Wan Kenobi is not going to carry the day, uh, Michelle. Well, my last dog was named Darth Vader, and he was still under 10 pounds. So <laughs> maybe I'll also need to change his name to something a little more menacing. Right. We're getting lots of great practice tips, if nothing else, right? So uh, our next section, best interest of the child, additional factors to be considered. This is 16.92 sub one. In deciding whether to authorize a relocation of a child of the marriage, the court shall, in order to determine what is in the best interest of the child, take into consideration, in addition, the factors referred to in section 16. This is uh, another important change. It lists the factors that the court will will consider there's no one factor that will outweigh the other. Probably court will, the court's gonna take a holistic view. This refers back to Gordon and Gertz. So I'm glad that we're, we're gonna put a link to that decision in our show notes today, because that case goes through a number of factors. Um, there could be a number of reasons for the change in relocation and it could be important to that the court is aware of all these other reasons and factors when assessing whether the change is ultimately in the best interest of the child. So another helpful section, uh, another improvement to the Divorce Act would be my view. Bill, what do you think of this section? 
Well, I, I think it's good. I mean, uh, uh, Gordon and Gertz did say uh, you're normally not supposed to look at the reason for the move unless it ties in with uh, the parent's ability to meet the needs of the child. But judges, I think, usually want to know what the reason is. Um, so I think it's good that they're explicitly saying that, you know, look, this is relevant. This is a question that needs to be answered. Um, and interestingly, uh, in Gordon and Gertz, I was reviewing it, and they do talk a little bit about um, the, uh, what kinds of reasons are no good. And one of them, uh, this is a bad reason to be moving, and that is to thwart the other parent's ability to see the child. So if that's the reason you're moving, no. Yeah, great point. Carolyn? Yeah, and I think it's important to have um, and have the recognition that it is a relevant factor. So in these cases, you see a lot of the time, it could be moving for work, it could be moving for, because they've repartnered and they need to, you know, they're repartnered and their partner's living somewhere else. Um, so all those factors are relevant because at the end of the day, it does sort of circle back to what is in the best interest for the child. And that um, does help the court now making it a clear requirement instead of a maybe a definite acknowledgement that it should be considered as helpful, not only for the parties, but also for lawyers as well, um, in order to pursue and litigate these types of cases. It might be an error by the judge that he, that he or she fails to consider these factors in uh, the written decision if there's a, a dispute and it goes to an appeal court. So great point, Michelle. Absolutely. It's also in keeping with um, the other changes in the Divorce Act regarding parenting time and decision making that you will consider the best interest of the child. That is now the preliminary test that you take into account. So like anything, a relocation is going to impact the child or children, and we will have to take into account how that is going to affect the child's children in this case. So I think it's, it's a cohesive section and it lends well with the rest of the changes. Thank you. So we're going to turn to Bill. You're going to review a few sections for us next, Bill. Uh, thanks, Russ. Um, yeah, the next one uh, we're going to discuss is section 16.921B, uh, um, which talks about the impact that the relocation uh, would have on a child. It's obviously a, an obvious factor, but it's good to have it set out. And um, the commentary on the, the government website talks about um, when you're when you're when you're looking at this factor, the court's going to probably end up uh, comparing the advantages and disadvantages to the child uh, of the proposed relocation. So um, again, it's going to be uh, it's early days. We'll have to wait and see how the case law plays out on this. My guess is. Um, you know, the more that the relocation is going to reduce contact with the other parent, the more you're going to have to show that the move is very advantageous to the child. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I've, I've argue, argued several mobility cases, and I'm just trying to understand uh, what this, you know, impact word in this particular section would mean. Probably we would be looking at extended family. Oftentimes, children live in <clears throat> with uh, maternal or paternal grandparents or uncles. And if they're moving to a community where there is no extended family, that's going to have an impact. So basically, the roots that are in place for the child 
could be school, it could be friends, um, it could be sports teams, extracurricular activities. The list is probably endless, but the word impact really, everything impacts the child in terms of the community that the child lives in. So if you're gonna go from a vibrant, busy community with lots of family roots and contacts to maybe a rural or Northern community or on a farm somewhere, that's gonna be a big impact on the child and may inform the judge uh, how they're gonna approach the case. What do you think, Michelle? I absolutely agree. And on the flip side, if you have ch a child with maybe special needs, maybe if you're moving to an area where, for instance, um, maybe you do live in an area that's more rural or does not have um, you know, the resources that maybe a bigger city would have, and the move will, even though it changes a child's school, gives them access to maybe more specific schooling or more resources or more community um, assistance, that could also be an impact. So I, I think you're right. I think it is an inclusive term in terms of anything can impact the child and it's awesome. up to both parents. Classic lawyer move, eh? Just turn my <laughs> argument on its head and, <laughs> but you're right. You, the, you might be moving the child to a community with better resources or maybe relocating to a community where extended family is. Uh, or they, that they uh, have other connections, right? Good point. Carolyn? Yeah, and just extend on that, like like you mentioned about um, children's relationship to extended family, and that might be um, looking at the impact because childcare can be very expensive. And so if you're moving to a location where you might have the help from extended family members um, and there's no cost for that, that could also be an impact um, on the child in terms of like nurturing that relationship as well as um, for that family as well. Great point. Bill, what do we got up next? The, the, next, uh, the next factor, uh, Russ, is uh, uh, it's the amount of time spent uh, with the child by each person who has parenting time or a pending application for parenting time and the level of involvement in the child's life of each of those persons. Um, so again, it's, it's a pretty straightforward uh, thing to look at. Um, and they, uh, the commentary uh, points out that even if the burdens of proof uh, do not apply, um, it's, it's still relevant to, to consider this uh, because the relocation can be disruptive and uh, you've, got to, you've got to take a look at that. And, um, interestingly, just as an aside, I keep bringing up Gordon and Gertz, which is no longer the governing law, but ironically, let, let it go, Bill, let it go. I, ironically, uh, the father who lost and mom took the kid to Australia, uh, Australia so she could study how to be an orthodontist. Um, weirdly, she had sole custody, so she was allowed to go in the end, but he actually spent more time with the kid. So it was weird, but um, so I don't know if this is going to be determinative. Uh, we'll have to see, but it's certainly uh, an important factor to look at. Thank you, Michelle. Thoughts? Thank you, Russ. Absolutely, Bill. I think you're right. You know, you can have an order where, for instance, one party is supposed to have every other weekend or holidays or whatever it is. But if historically that party hasn't taken that parenting time, or maybe for work or other reasons has given up a lot of his or her parenting time to the other parent, the courts are also going to look at that because it doesn't really matter what the order says. It really matters what the parties have been doing and if they've been following that order. 
So I think it's uh, I, I think it's important to to really look at what has been happening and who have these children been with, and is it in the best interest of the children that they now make this move, depending on you know those factors. Just picking up on a theme that Michelle mentioned in the um, last section about uh, child care and maybe using family members to assist. If oh, I think that was Carolyn, although I'd love to take uh, <laughs> credit for it. If you look at the actual language of this section, it says the amount of time spent with the child by each person who has or is seeking parenting time. That doesn't mean it's a parent. This could be a grandparent who's brought an application and is seeking time. Uh, an uncle or an aunt or a family member. So this is pretty broad scope. If you look at the language of the legislation, it's not limited to parents. We're used to thinking this, you know, this concept of parental deference where the parents will decide these matters and extended families will, uh, they'll have a voice. So I think this potentially will give grandparents and other extended family members or people who are seeking parenting time uh, and a chance to make an argument if there's an issue of a relocation. Carolyn, what do you think? I think this um, section is crucial because I think it gets people thinking about not only about their move, but also about their plan. So it's two parts. So you want to move, but you also have to say, well, how can I maintain and establish um, the relationship that the child or the children have established with the other parent? So part of that, you know, you have to look at, okay, what does that current time look like? And what's your proposal for what it would look like after the move? Um, and so you want to marry it up. Like it may not be, like Michelle mentioned, like the every other weekend. So if it's not going to be the every other weekend, you have to start thinking about, okay, well, what would that look like because of flights or train rides or long extended times in the car? It starts um, opening up that dialogue. Great point. And even if you're moving within Ontario, we practice in Ontario, you might be in a different time zone. You might be 18 hours north. The, the, the travel and arrangements for the childcare could be very significant. You know, is it in the child's best interest to have a 10-hour car ride each weekend to have an access visit? So that's a, it's an important factor. Or the move might just be down, you know, might be only a few hours away and the parents objecting because of a change in school district and or work schedules. Good points. Bill, what do we have up next? Uh, the next factor, I love this one, Russ. It's, uh, um, it's a, they look at, whether the person who intends to relocate with the child has complied with the legislation's notice requirements um, or <clears throat> a court order uh, or an agreement. And I think that what the commentary says on that, and I totally agree, is if you've got someone who hasn't bothered to comply with these notice requirements, or maybe they're deliberately not doing it, um, it, it might reflect on the importance they assign to the child's relationship with the other parent. Um, and it would look very bad. They obviously don't care or suggest they don't care. Um, and also um, it provides information uh, as to the likelihood that this person will comply with future court orders. So I, I love this, uh, this one. Good point, Bill. Uh, Bill, thank you, Michelle. 
Thanks, uh, Bill. Yes, absolutely. It's an important section. And I have unfortunately had to argue a relocation case where no notice was given. Uh, so I have, I've unfortunately had to argue one of these cases before. And I think it's very important because it is indicative of how that person is going to treat the other, their respect for the other parent, um, their ability to encourage the children's relationship with that other parent. So very important thing for courts and for lawyers to think about. Carolyn? Yeah, so just add for Michelle's situation there, it just brings home the idea of self-help. So it's basically saying you, I don't think you can argue that you didn't understand the law or you didn't know it or that you're ignorant, um, that there has been this change and you really can't rely on a self-help remedy here where you just take up and leave when there's this legislation in place. Unless you're common law, but we're still not recognizing <laughs> it. So the... Uh, you know, this sort of reinforces this concept of clean hands. So if you're coming to court seeking relief, you need to have your house in order and ensure that you've made the notice requirements. Oftentimes, if I'm representing a client and want to stop the litigation in its tracks, if there's an outstanding cost order, a judge will be very reluctant to permit the um, person who has not paid the costs to take further steps or get further relief from the court until that order has been complied with. But this talks about provincial family law orders, uh, arbitration awards. So if you went to mediation arbitration, didn't like the result, you still need to comply with that order unless you appeal it. So very, uh, I agree, Bill, very important section. So Michelle Mulchin, you're gonna bring this train into the station. I think you've got the next few items for us today. Yes. Absolutely. So then subsection E talks about the existence of an order, an award, or an agreement specifying a geographic area. So as you referenced before, Russ, um, usually when we do separation agreements, we try to put in some language about moves, whether they're allowed. Um, for instance, if we know that one party may or may not be um, thinking about a move, we may already have put parameters into an agreement or into a court order about that. So this is not meant to upend those existing agreements or orders. Really, it's meant to assist when there isn't language and when we need um, additional um, interference or information from a judge. So I think it's an important change because it allows a judge to look back in the past and see if the parties have already considered a move. And if they have, then there's likely less going to be interference with um, respect to going forward if they're still within those boundaries. Bill, what do you think? I, uh, I totally agree. This wasn't this my thing. <laughs> Carolyn? Yeah, I think it's also um, hits home when, like we were talking about this legislation, but you also have to think about when you're drafting um, separation agreements or you're coming up with terms in there, it's important because that can sort of spill over in the future if you're having a relocation. So if there's a certain kilometer distance that you feel comfortable with, with a move, you wanna spell that out in your separation agreement. You wanna spell that out in your court order. Um, if you want, if you are worried about a move, you might want to have that specified in your separation agreement or your court order, because I think it's just alluding that we have to be more cognizant of our drafting, more cognizant of the materials that we put in with all these changes. And again, I would suggest take a very close look at the language of the section. This is mandatory. It says the court shall take into consideration. 
And it also references best interests of the child, which is a theme throughout all the Divorce Act changes. So certainly uh, an important update. What do we have up next, Michelle? So then the next section talks about the reasonableness of the proposal. And really, this is the biggie. This is the big section, because if, for instance, a move is not really going to change much, except for maybe an additional half hour of travel time a week, there's going to be less likelihood that the courts will stop that move versus if you want to move across the country and completely eradicate time. So it's going to look at things like um, how it's going to affect parenting time how it's going to affect decision making or contact, um, the new location of the resident, travel expenses, time of travel. So again, an inclusive section that allows the court to look at, is this move reasonable? And I think it's important because um, a party needs to show the court that they have looked into options to ensure that they are maximizing contact with the other party and ensuring that they are um, ensuring that the other party is having a relationship with the children. So this is an important section that should be really at the forefront when you are considering a move. Even before you give your notice, you should really give some thought to what is going to be the proposal going forward. I agree. And, you know, it's going to need to, the reasonableness probably will be gauged by how well it encourages the child to have a relationship with the other parent. That seems to be the underlying test in everything. And the judge is going to likely use discretion in terms of assessing reasonableness. That would be my take on this. What do you think, um, Bill? Yeah, I, I agree with what's been said. And um, I'm just noticing that the commentary here uh, gives an example, um, uh, proposing that a 14-year-old fly between Ottawa and Toronto once a month is more practical than proposing that a three-year-old fly between Sydney, Australia and Vancouver once a month. Um, and again, we've got Australia coming in because of Gordon and Gertz. Seems to be a bit of a theme there, Bill. You Don't worry, them. Bill. If you are ever in OCL, you could still argue Gordon and Gertz. But you know, a, a, a three-year-old flying to Australia once a month, like that's just, that's a really good example of something that's really not reasonable and, and so, I welcome th this provision. Right, good point. Carolyn? Yeah, just to extend on that, I think it also um, makes you realize that when you're thinking about this move and you're making a proposal or you're responding to it, you have to realize it's a case-by-case -case analysis. And I think the court's recognizing that. So what might've happened for something else, someone else that you heard about may not work for your family or your situation. So you have to really hunker down and think about, okay, what is the best possible outcome um, or proposal that can be made so that you can maximize the time between the child and the other parent or extend family as much as possible. That's a great point. A lot of these cases are going to be fact-driven outcomes. So you may have heard a friend or know of somebody who did the move. Their facts may be completely different than yours. So the facts are going to drive the outcomes in this case. Great point, Carolyn. What do we have up next, Michelle? All right, so the last section. So whether each person who has parenting time or decision-making has complied with their obligations under the legislation, the order, the agreement, and as well, their likelihood of a future compliance. So this is not only speaking about parenting time, but it's also speaking about decision-making. It's speaking about 
for instance, if there's an agreement that the parties shall allow the other deference, if for instance, there is a wedding or funeral to change parenting regimes, and also about child support. So for instance, if you have someone who consistently refuses to pay child support, they are not going to have as great a standing in the court, especially if the move is finance driven. So I've actually done a relocation case where mom had to move in with her parents and her parents were three and a half hours away, but that's because dad had kicked her and the kids out of the home, was not paying any child support. She had a brand new baby who was three months old and she had no way to pay for herself. So it was a shelter or grandma and grandpa. And so obviously the courts found that in that particular circumstance that this was a fact uh, driven case created by the opposing party and that it was in the best interest of both the children and the mom to be able to move. Bill, what's your take on this one? Well, I, I think it's a great uh, provision, Russ. And um, as, uh, as I learned in Family Law 101 many years ago, there's, uh, there's two ways to uh, turn uh, a judge against you. One, don't pay your child support. Two, don't encourage access uh, with the other parent. Right. And so this is uh, uh, a good acknowledgement that that, uh, that kind of misbehavior uh, is, is gonna work against you. I agree, it sort of goes to that general concept of cl clean hands. If you're not following your legal obligations and complying with previous or existing orders, you're not gonna do well when it comes to arguing or defending against a relocation case. Great point, Bill. Carolyn? Yeah, and so I just, when I saw this and I sort of thought it kind of, um, the court recognizes the issue of credibility and they sort of just put it at the forefront. And it says, I think if you follow court orders and you're coming here with a proposal and you're putting an opposition forward, I think you're going to have higher credibility when the court is hearing your reasons for the, or objection for the move. Whereas if you're coming to the court and you don't follow court orders, you're gonna not have credibility when you file that um, objection. So I think it's just, they're making it very clear um, on the credibility issue. Right, you come to court, say I'm objecting, and by the way, I want to uh, get a refraining order because my driver's license is being suspended for not paying child support. I think the, the court's gonna lose patience with your with your with your client very quickly and find the arguments are threadbare great point carolyn so final thoughts and uh, uh, russ if i could just add i think the clean hands doctrine that you uh, suggested is even right. more important during COVID. yeah 20 minutes what 20 seconds 30 seconds bill yeah Washing the hands yeah yeah at least it's a happy birthday song right yeah well bill it's your birthday every day Bring it to yourself. So. I'm almost a thousand years old. Right. So final thoughts, you know, all these changes, and we've done um, several hours of podcasts on the Divorce Act changes now. All of them, I think, are fantastic. A lot of the, I can't believe a lot of this has not already been in the legislation. Judges are probably doing this analysis absent the changes, and it's sort of codifying the approach the courts have taken over the last several years. The very helpful changes, it's gonna enable lawyers in the family bar to provide uh, meaningful legal advice to their clients. 
usually relocations, you just take a dart and throw it over the wall. You're not too sure what the outcome is going to be, other than it's probably going to be two years of litigation if it's disputed and it's going to require a trial. Most relocation issues, the judge will not permit the, well, it's going to change now with these changes, but previously, most cases, judges would not permit a move until a trial and they had a full evidentiary basis. You couldn't get a relocation order on a motion unless it was absolutely urgent. So I think this is going to provide some ground rules, some certainty. It's going to enable lawyers to, to give meaningful and more in-depth advice to clients and they'll help them develop a plan if they're relocating or if they're objecting to a re relocation and kind of walk them through it. So I think these are great changes. Bill, your thoughts? Correct me if I'm wrong, but even if you're common law in Ontario, um, didn't they cut and paste everything and put it, it's going to be exactly the same in the Moving Ontario Family Law Forward Act? It, right? It's supposed to be. It just hasn't Posted. come into effect yet. Oh, so yeah. I'm jumping the gun on this. You are. You're ahead of your time, Bill. All right. I won't mention that then. Okay. I just think you guys are absolutely bang on. It's, it's, uh, these guidelines are welcome, and I think it's going to help. But you're exactly right, Bill. A lot of these changes were already in existing provincial legislation or the provinces are catching up to try to make it consistent. <clears throat> so whether or not you're married or common law, it's likely the court's going to take uh, these approaches. Uh, who we got up next? Carolyn, what do you think? Final thoughts? Yeah, I just think um, I really like this section because um, I think that mobility relocation cases are some of the hardest cases to argue in family law. And it's, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty and it's one of those where it's like, you know, there's a going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. There's really no compromise. There's no negotiating a deal. It's just, it's a yes or no. So I think that these guidelines and these, the notice and all the um, amendments to the act help and provide a structure for everybody involved. Yeah. It's just sort of a pick up on that theme with the housing market and rental market currently taking off, we might see more relocation cases. People might be deciding we're going to sell the home and cash out. Or somebody we've had, I think Bill was involved in a case where somebody said, there, there are no rentals. I can't, I can't move. I, I have to stay here. There's nowhere to move to. So, we, so you know, there's going to be, I think, a lot of mobility cases and that we're going to be seeing. It's certainly, um, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's nice to get settled rules, but that doesn't mean the issue of mobility is going to go away anytime soon. Michelle? I think it's important, Russ. I like especially that it is set out in the legislation, not just in case law, because it's much more accessible, not just to lawyers, but to self-representatives as well. Because, you know, a lot of the time people do things without realizing that they have an obligation or that they must give 60 days notice. This is a simple cut and paste. Hey, look at this website, understand what your rights are. And sometimes that alone helps to lessen legal fees. For instance, if my client is up against a self-represented party, if we have something that's so clear, the self-represented party is likely gonna make better choices. Right. You know, how do you stop a litigant that will stop at nothing, right? Well, these divorce changes, I think, help put the brakes on some of that litigation nonsense that we hear about all the time, unfortunately. Great point, Michelle. 
So I want to thank Michelle, Carolyn, and Bill for generously giving us their time today. Very important changes, very important topic for a lot of families. I want to thank our listeners for, on our Family Law Now podcast and our viewers here today on YouTube. Please leave us your thoughts and comments in the box below. If you've liked this video and found it helpful, please give us a thumbs up to let us know. You can subscribe to our channel and hit the bell icon to get notification every time we upload a new video. Thank you for watching. Bye everyone, thank you.